Welcome to another edition of Angel Nest, where real angel investors and entrepreneurs gather to tell the stories of their great businesses. I'm David Hemingway. I'm a five-time founder and now an active angel investor. And my mission here is to talk about how investors collaborate with startups to build great companies. We don't make or recommend investments here, but we do try to help entrepreneurs and angels find the right partnerships. Today, we're talking about outer space and how to deploy all the satellites and gear our technology depends upon today. And our guest is Christopher Craddock. He's the CEO and co-founder of Rocketstar. He and his team have been working to make fully reusable rockets feasible. And now, thanks in part to the advancements of 3D printing, Rocketstar has invigorated the potential of a nearly 60-year-old concept in rocket design called the Aerospike. We're also very pleased to be joined today by Robert Briskman. He's a founding member of NASA, a co-founder of Sirius Satellite Radio, and also worked on the Apollo program. And he's been an advisor to Rocketstar from the very beginning. Gentlemen, welcome to the Angel Nest. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, so the place to start, I guess, is to talk about why now you see an increasing need for reusable rockets. So with the standing up of the Space Force and the reorganization of Air Force under that banner, in addition with the Artemis program now being seriously funded by the Trump administration and backing up by Congress, there is a need for fully reusable rockets and fixed-wing aircraft yesterday. Uh, between that and uh, Frost and Sullivan puts the report for small sats between now and 2033 at 20,000 have to be launched. And there's only about 100 rockets that go up every year. Probably only 12 of that currently go to uh, dedicated small sat launches. There just aren't enough rockets to go up, and there isn't enough cadence uh, of rockets going up to constantly support this need. So it's really bottlenecked, and the, the demand is only going to get bigger now that the government has kind of pushed hard into this. And, you know, Rob, I even wonder if the average person realizes that every rocket's used only one time. I mean, in the age that everything is recycled, uh, that seems very inefficient. Uh, that's it's only a fairly recent concept, I'd say, um, uh, maybe... Um, Elon proposed it maybe three years ago and uh, proved it uh, just uh, a year ago. I think the first uh, person uh, that uh, pushed for reuse was uh, Elon Musk uh, with his SpaceX rockets. And um, in fact, uh, when he proposed it, there were a lot of uh, people who doubted <laughs> both his ability to do it and um, uh, B, whether it would really uh, turn out to be economically uh, useful. And he has uh, obviously proved uh, both of those points, um, proved it, and he's gone on to not only um, uh, reuse the rockets, but he has been uh, catching the fairings as well, and uh, you, we're trying to reuse those. So uh, from the dawn of space, uh, Rockets were not reusable, and uh, being reusable is very, very important now, as uh, Chris said. Now, you and Chris are focused on the aerospike. Can you tell us why that is the right solution? Believe it or not, when I was uh, in NASA, this is 59, 60, 1959 and 60, 
Um, we actually uh, spent a reasonable amount of money trying to develop a aerospike uh, engine. The reason b basically is that uh, the thrust is created by hot gases going through uh, what's called a nozzle, it's the end of the engine. And obviously the amount of thrust is dependent on the shape of the nozzle. So to optimize it, uh, one can come up with the design which is perfect, but it must be in accordance with the ambient pressure. And obviously, um, one couldn't design it perfectly for a launch from the Earth. And uh, the trouble is, as this launch vehicle moves up in space, the shape of the nozzle is not optimum for the higher altitudes. So one could, of course, make it optimum for the higher altitude operation, and then it won't be efficient at liftoff from the Earth. So the aerospike is a device which is inserted in the throat of that nozzle and is shaped so that it optimizes the thrust both at liftoff from the Earth and then while the rocket engine is firing in space. Hope that it wasn't too complicated. I tried to make it simple. Chris, you want to uh, simplify it for uh, people? No, I, I think that was a, uh, you know, believe it or not, that was probably one of the best definitions I've heard because uh, optimization of altitude uh, for bell nozzles is really difficult to go across all altitudes. It's actually impossible. That's why Musk doesn't do it. Musk uses, uh, at the moment, three different nozzles to get the space, uh, and he's trying to optimize that further with Starsh uh, Starship and have two nozzles. But either way, uh, he can't... Uh, have it expand with the altitude change or change to, the, to optimize the altitude, but the aerospike can't. The aerospike is only bounded by one side, so it's open to the air, and it's optimized at all levels. It expands with the change in air pressure. Uh, so that is the reason why we pursued it, and that's the reason why we want to use it for our system, uh, simply because we want aircraft-like access to space. We want to fly up, fly down, refuel and fly up again. Make it simple. Make it easy. So, Chris, tell us about your IP. Uh, we are patent pending. Uh, we filed uh, July of last year. We're still in the, the discovery process, uh, but we have a full patent pending under the Aerospike in a lot of different formats uh, within the uh, design of the Aerospike. So investors are going to want to know who are going to be the customers for this and uh, if you have a plan to go get them. Yeah, it's it's been very crowded in terms of customer discovery. Uh, we have a lot of interest on the commercial side uh, with individual satellite operators, such as uh, like companies like ISI or Planet Labs or uh, just universities. And then there's the satellite aggregators like Spaceflight and uh, Tricep's been a very interesting partner to discuss with uh, and a lot of the other ones uh, uh, on top of the fact of constellations like OneWeb we have literally putting out a satellite once a week or like every three days. And then, of course, there's the government. Right. <laughs> you know, I was in a meeting about a week ago, and uh, Air Force wants a fixed-wing aircraft to space like now. Uh, and no one's really attacking a single-stage to orbit fully reusable launch vehicle. And they're going to need that because at the end of the day, uh, you know, Army has tanks, Navy has ships. Uh, the Air Force has 
jet planes. Space Force needs spaceships. You really can't support a uh, military in space with the kind of rocket craft we have today. You, you can kind of put up satellites and spy in the sky, but you can't put man-rated things up there right now. Mm-hmm. So between that, NASA getting back to the moon to stay, I mean, you know, that's the difference between let's just go and do a camping trip like we did with Apollo. Nothing against Apollo. That was amazing, but that's really what it was. It was a camping trip. Now we're going back and staying. I mean, you need support. You mm-hmm. need a, a, a way to constantly have a railroad to space. And you're going to need a robust method to get back and forth with no problem whatsoever. I was, I was looking up arable land the other day. Mm-hmm. There's about 57 million square miles of, of land on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Only about 12 million of that is arable land that you can farm. Wow. Or live on, for that matter. Because like, you can say, well, I'm going to not live on the farmland, but you still need water. Right. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, there's 14.9 million uh, miles of land on the moon. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So, and that's the, that's the moon. Mars, 56 million. Wow. There's, there's a lot of opportunity, when, it's, as long as you have a, a quick way to go back and forth. Right. So tell us what Rocket Star's competitive advantage is going to be. Um, we, we have the patent on the aerospike. <laughs> so anybody who wants to try this, well, you got to pay us. It's, it's very much akin to uh, the problem that uh, American flight uh, ran into early on in, in uh, American history, and that is the Wright brothers own the patent on controlled flight. Mm-hmm. So when uh, Kurt, uh, Glenn Curtis came in and said, hey, I want to do a, a much more powerful plane and this, that, and the other, and then he went to the Wright brothers, they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately it was the U.S. government came in and said, hey, you know, we're at war. We need planes, so stop squabbling and figure this out. But to answer your question, yeah, that we're, we're going to have – not only the advantage of the patent, but also the advantage of years of, of work to uh, perfect this to the point that it's uh, a flight-capable system. Uh, Aerospike, as we make it sound very simple because it's just, you know, one different geometry than a, a bell nozzle. It's like if you take uh, a, a cup and turn it upside down, that's a bell nozzle. You turn it right side up, then that's a Aerospike, essentially. You run it down the side of the cup instead of inside it. But... The fuel systems, the pumps, the all the plumbing, the uh, the robustness of checking, and all of that has been figured out by us already. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have that runway already done. If a company comes in and has a way to get around the patent process, they're still going to need 18 to 36 months of work mm-hmm. in order to get something flight tested and ready to compete with us. So what do you think of the first use cases? So first use is going to be small sets. Uh, we feel that the market does not have the capability to support all of the small sets that are going up. For Austin Sullivan, they said it was 20,000. They didn't include the uh, 50 to 100,000 small sets from like OneWeb and Starlink and everyone else. And you can say, well, you know, Musk is going to put up his own Star, uh, Starlink uh, small sets. And you're right. But to support the uh, ones that he deorbits and puts up new ones, he's going to need help. So there will there will be a lot of overage. There'll be a lot of uh, you know calls in that just like, hey, we need something now. NRO, uh, government uh, service agencies, they're going to be like, we need to sat on this guy now. We've got a hole in our network. Put something up. We don't care what it costs. We've already had a lot of discussions like that. And once we get flight capable, there's going to be a lot deeper discussions. When do you think that'll be? 
Within 60 to 90 days. Great. We have uh, a tech demonstration launch that we're finalizing. We're trying to do it with the Air Force, uh, and that should be out of Kennedy pretty soon. And when I say pretty soon, it's literally sitting in a garage uh, down in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's kind of fun because the, the thing's so long, they had to take the nose cone off because uh, otherwise we couldn't shut the door. Mm. But, uh, yeah, she's ready to fly. We just got to find a pad to have her jump off from. And you and your team have a lot of standing in the industry. You've done a lot with NASA before, right? Yeah, we have our CAN agreement, which uh, we finished the first part with NASA. And that was the idea of creating uh, an enclosed system for the Mars Ascent vehicle. We started off with a pintle injector. Uh, We've made some pretty good uh, strides with that. And now we're actually working on the next leg of that, and we might bring in a National Science Foundation to actually finish that out. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of different inter- interested parties uh, that I can just, you know, rattle off like 100 different acronyms of different agencies that want to see a single stage to orbit reusable launch vehicle in the air. Mm-hmm. And so, Rob, investors always want to know about the people behind the company. Uh, and I know you and Chris have worked together for a long time. How, how did you get involved in Rocket Star? And uh, what can you tell us about that? I, um, Met Chris, so I think about six years ago, actually, uh, at the Union League Club, I believe, bar, and he was talking about this his concept at that time of Rocket Star, which I thought it was very interesting, and um, made some suggestions for things you ought to look at and work at. Um, I fortunately could bring uh, the old information on the aerospike from NASA. So uh, I've been uh, trying to help and support uh, Chris in uh, getting this moving forward. In fact, I believe I even introduced you to our um, patent attorney, right? Yes, sir. Um, what else can we tell investors about the potential of Aerospike and Rocketstar? Well, I think the potential is, is tremendous. Um, obviously, Chris was talking about the government and the uh, large number of um, low-orbit constellations and I just want to uh, make sure that uh, people listening to this understand the um, size of this. Um, uh, there are two uh, that not only have proposed large, low constellations, but have actually implemented part of it. Um, the uh, two are OneWeb, and they just launched, I believe, uh, 40 satellites uh, to start this uh, constellation. And the other one is... Um, Elon Musk's uh, Starlink, and uh, he has had, I think, three launches, and I believe he has uh, roughly 70 satellites in orbit now. Now, both of those are talking about putting almost a 1,000 or more satellites into that constellation. And then I could go on and on and on and, uh, until your podcast runs out of tape, uh, talking about all of the other uh, proposals and implementations of um, uh, large and semi-large constellations. And the thing about it, which you know Chris has mentioned, is not only do they all require launches to get these satellites up, but probably more importantly, it will require replacement satellites. And these are like one-on-ones where you've lost in this constellation a satellite. And although this may sound like nothing if you have a thousand, uh, it is something because it means you have a hole in your surface coverage. 
and uh, uh, customers are not uh, uh, happy with that. So it will be you know, imperative to immediately replace these, and they have to be replaced. They all have a particular orbit, both in height and inclination. That's, uh, again, rocket science to say they have to be precisely put into the orbit needed, and um, this will require, uh, I think, many, many launch vehicles, and they'll be needed immediately, and uh, this need will be almost constant. So I really think it's a tremendous opportunity, and I believe that Rocket Star addresses well this opportunity being efficient. In other words, this uh, aerospike makes the rocket efficient, being cheap. The numbers that Chris has been working on were um, reasonable costs for, launch, for both the launcher and launching it are, to my mind, uh, compared with the need, <laughs> inexpensive. These people obviously need to pay a lot to get that service back in service immediately. And so um, the co cost uh, of the, the Rocket Star launch, launcher and launch, I think uh, will uh, be very attractive to them. I think that's really key about it, about our tech, too, is that it's on-demand launch. You're not talking about you have to wait uh, four months to uh, pack your satellite or, or wait two years for a launcher to come up. It'd be like, okay, can you roll out one today and get us up? Yeah, yeah, we can do that. We've got uh, two in the barn. We can put it up right now. So that's the kind of uh, response that we could offer with our tech and with our uh, current rocket capability. Well, it sounds like you've both been on a great adventure that is about to come to fruition in a very big way. So uh, congratulations. And Chris, where can potential investors or partners reach you? Uh, you can reach me uh, through the website, uh, which is www.rocketstar.nyc, or just email me directly at chris at rocketstar.nyc. Great. Thanks both for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you, and uh, good luck with your angel investing. Thank you. <laughs> you can learn more at our website, theangelnest.com. And now for the disclaimer that we don't make or recommend investments at The Angel Nest. We do not independently verify and cannot be responsible for the claims made by our guests or sponsors. You should always do your own homework before investing in any business, especially in private ventures. I'm David Hemingway with help from David Newhoff. We produce The Angel Nest at the Film Center building in New York. Thanks for listening. Here's hoping my fellow angel investors and the founders they support find their next great venture. So long until next time.